you gave him a standing ovation, he'd be up here forever. So would I. <laughs> I'm Tom, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to feel trapped by this thing, but, but we'll see what we can do. Something about Charleston, every time I come down here, I, uh, my stomach starts doing things. Y'all remember last time I was down here, and it was a stomach? And uh, My doctor, my old doctor, told me when I quit drinking, I used to go with him with all kinds of troubles. I had a bad case of hypochondria when I, when I first got sober. Any of y'all had that yet? I felt parts of my body I hadn't felt in a long time. I mean, really, and they hurt, you know. And I went to see my doctor, Bill, you know, and, and uh, he'd sit back and smile while I told him my troubles. And he was so caring and, you know, concerned and, and loving because he would say to me, I told you if you ever quit drinking, you was going to fall apart. <laughs> and uh, I guess I'm still falling apart in some sense. But if I have to leave and go to the bathroom, you know, bear with me. Uh, stomach's kind of churning. It's either Charleston water or or stress or tension, and who cares? It's just there. And, uh, and we're going to try to uh, share anyway this morning. Uh, how many of you were out there last night at, uh, at Baker Hospital? Mm, okay. That's good. How many of you are alcoholic out there? Let me see your hands. Okay. And how many addicts? Okay. And you know what I call them. How many pigs? That means you drink everything too thin to chew and you've chewed the re- or shot the rest of it. Uh, cross addicts, they call them. I was, there was a kid down in Columbia, South Carolina, not long ago, and this kid couldn't have been over 17 years old. And, and when I talked with groups of patients, I asked them to introduce themselves. And we got to this kid, and I thought he was never going to get through introducing himself. You know, he was alcoholic, he was addict, he was bulimic, he was, an- he, he was everything. And I just stood there until the kid finished, and I said, Son, why don't you save yourself some breath and just say you're a damn mess or something when it comes your turn, because he had everything. I think some of us do that uh, sometimes in order to brag, you know. old friend of mine in AA says that when he comes around AA now, he, he, uh, he, he goes to a meeting, and there's more andas than there are AA members. And uh, there I go with it right there. <laughs> but, uh, but we're all... Uh, people who are in a process of spiritual growth. And I want to talk probably mainly today about spiritual, spirituality, spiritual growth, what it is, I think, and what it isn't, I think, and kind of look at uh, the, the latter steps of the program. You know, we, we, we talk about the... Uh, uh, first five steps of the program and the first nine steps of the program, you know, endlessly, it seems, sometimes. And, and I wonder about what the old-timers used to call the maintenance steps, steps 10 and 11 and 12. They're very important steps. And I want to get into those things uh, today with you also. Pretty much going to wing it, as I usually do, because <clears throat> it goes better that way. But I do want to share with you some points of view. Not from the point of, uh, of convincing you that I'm right, you see? Not from the point of view of, of, of your believing like I believe, but I want to share some opinions and some points of view of mine with you in hopes that it will touch something in you, get something going in you. So I really don't care if you agree with what I say or disagree with what I say. That's not the point. If it begins some kind of process of thinking about what we really are and what we're really after, and what we're really all about, and what our addiction was to begin with, then I've probably achieved my purpose. 
just want to spring something. I generally put it, I want to wind up the rubber bands in your, in your head and get them turning. And let's see if we can't do that. Any of you familiar with a, uh, a mystic by the name of Meister Eckhart? You are? I've been reading a little book of his meditations, and, uh, and it's, he's a very interesting kind of a person. Um, there's a line in his book that, that I like, uh, several lines as a matter of fact. Uh, one line is that when you pray, if you have said thank you, that will suffice. I like that. That's simplicity itself. But the line I want to share with you this morning is this. He says, the soul does not grow by addition, but by subtraction. The soul does not grow by addition, but by subtraction. Some of you have heard me talk before, and you've heard me talk about my kids. you heard me talk about my son, uh, Jason. And he's a big fellow now. He's uh, God's about as tall as I am, and he'll be 20 years old. It's hard to remember, hard to believe that he'll be 20 years old come October. Because I remember when he was walking out of his diapers up the driveway, you know. Kid had a real knack for walking out of his diapers. Never miss a step. And he's a beautiful kid. He would say things to me like... Uh, when I woke him up one morning, son, did you rest well? He'd say, yes, sir, all but my brain. My brain, he says, just never stops. <clears throat> kid that sat on his potty chair and said to me, uh, Jesus turns the power on. He said that to me one day, just out of the clear blue sky. Scared me to death. You know? And uh, kids are powerful. Kids are open channels. Kids are, if you will, I believe, closer to the source than many of us are. One of my goals in life is to be a child. That's one of my goals in life, to be a child. A gentleman was asking me today, by the way, he said, you mentioned Sanford last night. Are you talking about your senator from North Carolina? I said, no, I'm talking about Fred Sanford on Sanford and Son. He's one of my role models. You know, he, he and Wiley Coyote. You know, I, I, Wiley has perseverance. And that's what a lot of alcoholics need. He's never going to catch the roadrunner, but he doesn't know it. He's going to keep on trying. Anyway, I'm sitting there with my, my son. I forget what age he was. and I had become a little wary of the questions that he would ask me because more and more often I was having to say, I don't know. And we're sitting on the couch one night. I remember sitting on the couch, that part of it. And he says to me, Dad, why don't I uh, be the father for a while and you be the son? I said, well, how are we going to work that out? And he said, it's simple. He said, I'll grow up and be the father. You grow down and be the son. My son said, grow down. Meister Eckhart says, the soul does not grow by addition, but by subtraction. One of the spiritual teachers who walked the face of the earth put it very clearly to us in these words. Unless you become as a little child, he told this guy, you cannot enter this state of being that I've been talking about. Growing down. It's interesting, isn't it? We usually think of growing up. But we're talking about in the spiritual life a process that involves growing down, growing to be more childlike, more trusting, more honest. Honest in the sense of being what you are. Kids know how to do that real good. Do you ever notice that? They know how to be what they are. There's no sham. There's no hypocrisy. They're really up front. 
Getting back to that state of being, I think, has to do with spiritual growth. Subtracting, if you will. Subtracting what? A lot of self-centeredness. A lot of ego. The old-timers in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, when they were framing the 12 steps, learned from William James about spiritual experience and spiritual awakening. And with James, there were two elements in all spiritual experience. And he studied them and wrote a book about them called The Varieties of Religious Experiences. That's what he called them. And he said two elements are common to all. And the first element of every spiritual experience, said James, is ego deflation at depth. That's where we got our idea of bottom. Okay? Ego deflation at depth. The ego just flattens out. The person says, I can't, I give up, I surrender. And the other part of the spiritual uh, awakening or experience, according to James, was when this happens, when the ego flattens out, something else inside knows precisely and exactly where to turn and does so, usually with a cry, God help me. Have you had this experience? Have you been in a life-threatening situation and all the stops are out, you know? And you believe that you're an agnostic, uh, and you believe that you're atheist, and you believe all kinds of things, and, and all of a sudden all the stops are out, and, and you know it's falling to pieces here, man. And, and we don't cry for our mothers or our fathers, and we don't try to act grown up. But like a child does, automatically, spontaneously, we call out for the Father. It's a beautiful thing. And kids are closer to that, I think. And we want to become childlike. At least that is my belief. Spirituality is an interesting thing. Uh, we talk about it a lot. I know or knew a lot less about it than I think I know now when I got here. And I don't know a lot about it now. And maybe that's a good thing. We live in a strange world. Have you noticed that? I, I, was, I was talking to uh, uh, Pepper last night. I was down in Columbia, South Carolina not long ago. And there's this uh, van out there, and, and it uh, says fireworks. Okay? And I'm driving along, and this van says fireworks. But there's a sign out front. It's one of those lit signs that you roll in on rollers, you know. And it says, Jesus is Lord, discount fireworks. <laughs> this is a strange world. Okay? And I go into the waffle shop and have a cup of coffee, and there's a sign up there that says, and listen to this, shoes and shirts must be worn to be served. Have you thought about that? <laughs> it's a weird place we live in. You know that? People play games. Some of the darndest games I've ever seen in my life are played in the name of getting at the truth. Don't let me get off on politics. I, you know, I try not to get off on that. You have to get off to even talk about politics, <laughs> I think. But, you know, it's, it's a strange place. But it's a wonderful place. It's changed. Our view of, the, of, of man has changed. Have you noticed that? When you were studying history, you were studying philosophy, we used to look upon ourselves from what I call a bird's eye view. You know? We were at least uh, a combination of body, mind, and spirit. At least that. And somewhere along the line, this began to change. 
And we began to look at ourselves as, uh, from what I call, a worm's eye view. You know, we were body and mind. And gradually, even the mind's been reduced to brain. This organ that sits up here and fires off chemical neurotransmitters and carries messages and handles all these impulses, this marvelous mechanism, which in my belief is almost totally spiritual, has been reduced to brain. world changed, or our view of it changed a lot. Y'all ever get nostalgic? You, really, you know, I was talking last night, and y'all heard me. I was talking about that little mill village that I was born in. And uh, I, I love that place. Uh, everybody on that side of the street was family. Do you understand what I'm saying? We didn't have the same name, but everybody on the side of that street was family. I knew what family was. I knew what extended family was. You know? On this side of me lived uh, uh, Bill Sewell and his brother George and their, their sister Haffy. Has anybody ever heard a name Haffy on a girl? <laughs> It's a nice name, Happy Sewell. That was her name. Lived right next door to us. And they had, their mother was named Lena. And she's a big, heavyset lady. You know, and talked rather loud. And on the left side of me lived uh, Eula Beard and Q Beard, her husband, who, who had been off, off to prison, you know, and had been back and ran the local theater. And he was kind of sinister, but he kept pony, and he gave his son an alligator for his birthday. And, you know. And, Q, and it was John Q., his son, and, and Mike, their son, and Julie Vaughn, the sister, and on down was Martha Lucas, and on down was Betty Royal, you know. And everybody was family. Bill Sewell, he's a trip. Bill was an explorer, right? Had to explore everything. Bill didn't like to bathe. Every time Lena would try to put Bill in the bathtub, if she turned her head, Bill would escape. Okay? And Bill was a dark-skinned little boy with curly hair. You know, this this pretty little old boy had the prettiest little ass you ever saw. He did, because every time his mother would escape and his mom would come out on the porch, Big Alina, Tommy, he's loose again. And there goes that ass down the street. Bill's running down, down to Clay Hill where we all played. This big pile of clay is what it was. And I had to go catch Bill Sewell and bring him home so he could get his bath. You know? And there was the neighborhood pony, Beauty. Sweet, gentle old pony. All of us rode Beauty. It was Beauty that I decided after seeing Lash LaRue one Saturday, I was going to leap on a horse. <laughs> Any of you guys ever leap on a horse from the top of the garage? I never did it but once. I knew then that Lash LaRue had a stunt man. Either that or he had no testicles. I didn't know which, but I never leapt on a horse again. But you got to try everything once. My mother would spank Bill Sewell when he did something. Eula Beard would correct me when I did something wrong. And if she was wrong, she and my mama would fight. You know what I mean? Do you know I miss that? I do. I remember old man Lucas. He had a wooden wheelbarrow. <coughs> Any of y'all, some of y'all probably never saw a wooden wheelbarrow, handmade, right? Old metal wheel, wire wheel up front of it. And old man Lucas had come by the house, and he's on the way to the hog pen. You know, we had a hog pen down there in Irwin, back down by the creek. 
And Mr. Lucas would stop out in front of the house, and he would holler, and, and I'd come out and jump in the wheelbarrow with the hog slop. You know, he had his buckets of hog slop, and he'd ride me down, he'd talk to me all the way down to the hog pen. And he'd slop the hogs, that's what they called it, and I'd go over to the creek and catch crawdads and think. Y'all, I miss that. I work at a place now, it's a, oh, it's a gorgeous place, up in the mountains in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was built as a luxury hotel, you know, for the very rich back at the turn of the century. And it's now a hospital, and they got an alcohol and drug treatment center in it. It's just one of those just really pretty buildings, you know, old and pretty, nice design, architecture, good. <coughs> and they had an elevator in it that was as old as the building, I believe. Didn't work very well. And one of those with the old handle on it, you know, that you push to go up and down. Had the cutest little old lady named Joe that ran that elevator. And Joe always tell me about her children, her grandchildren. Every time I get on the elevator, she told me about them a hundred times. <coughs> always had pictures to show me of her grandchildren. I like Joe. And her husband's named Fred, and he's a little shorter than her, you know, with a brush haircut. Little man with a brush haircut. Used to love rubbing my hand across his head. And his back was always hurting, was Fred, you know. And I loved to hear him complain about his back. Y'all know people like that? They, I mean, you hear the same thing out of them, but these people have got character. And that elevator had character. And they got rid of it. Reason? It was old. We do the same thing in our society, don't we? We get rid of old things. Cars, people. And they replaced it with a sterile, stainless steel box that beeps in between floors. You know what I mean? You get on the thing and it goes beep. And you get up to your floor and it goes beep. I don't know if any elevator salesman here. It's probably a perfectly good elevator, but it's broken down a lot. And it's missing two things, Fred and Joe. And character. I ride down the road sometimes. Am I weird? I think... These beautiful dead trees, you know, like this. God has got character. Me and Lisa, look, I say, look at that one, you know. I get chill bumps when I see these things. And these huge, huge, and Charlotte's got a lot of big old oak trees in it, hundreds of years old, you know. You know, them suckers got roots probably that reach from here to the back of this auditorium. God, they're gorgeous. they got character. We still got some roads in North Carolina got character go just like this. You know? They were made to fit the countryside. You remember that? We went around the mountains. I came down here on interstate. Interstates are sterile. They bore me. It's fun. You get there fast. And fast is premium quality, isn't it? But I don't find any character on interstate except when I see a dead tree. Do you? I had a doctor in that mill village. I'm going to give away my age here, you know. Dr. Parker. He knew every part of my body. Knew every part of my mama's body. He delivered me. My, my daddy, he probably knew half of the town's bodies. When I broke my arm, he put a cast on it. and He let me come see him every day if I wanted to just so I could be proud of my cast, you know. And I had a dentist down at Dr. Woodall, and I'd go to him and love to go to the dentist when I was a kid. Hate to go now, love to go then. He made plaster of Paris uh, seven dwarf figures for you when you went to him. And they were hand-painted, y'all, hand-painted figures. 
Man, I had Snow White, Grumpy. I had all the seven dwarfs. Beautiful man. He's grinning all the time, you know, and he was happy. And, and he gave me these things when I went to him. I like that man. I have a good doctor now. His name's Tom. He's a good doctor. He's a family practitioner. They're beginning to come back, you know. But Tom doesn't treat all the parts of my bodies. You know, he, he, he sends me to somebody else. You know, you got a stomach problem, you go to a gastroenterologist. Isn't that what they call them? What a name. You know, uh, <laughs> you got a headache problem, migraines or something, go to a neurologist. You need front end alignment, you ladies, go to your gynecologist. Rear end, proctologist. Love it. Love that term. Proctologist. One of the founders, one of the co-founders of AA was a proctologist. You know that? Dr. Bob was a proctologist. Old timers tell me he had fingers that long. <laughs> That's right. They do. They say he point that long finger. What do you mean that long finger? He's a proctologist. He was. Great big old fingers on the sucker. Long and wire, you know. And I love Tom. He, he's, a, he's really a fine doctor. But I go to all these doctors, and it's like I'm a sum of many parts, and but nobody knows what the total is. You ever get that feeling? And, and nobody really knows what the other one's doing. Sometimes you have to ask one of these docs, well, I'm taking this medication and this medication. Will this conflict with you? You have to ask them. I miss Dr. Parker. As quality medicine goes, as we know it today, you know, probably he wasn't even a very good doctor, but he was. And one thing Dr. Parker had was character. If he didn't have anything else, he had character. And I miss it. I like jazz. Anybody like jazz? Now, I'm going to make some of you jazz fans probably a little irritated here by what I say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I was raised on uh, Miles Davis and Jerry Mulligan and Charlie Mingus Dave Brubeck, some of you never heard of that if you don't know jazz, but these are good mainstream jazz musicians, okay? Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, I love that. My wife's got a teddy bear named Thelonious Monk. I named him. And uh, I listen to a PBS station when I'm traveling because that's the only place you can get jazz now. And they come in on top of Miles Davis with uh, this... Uh, what they call contemporary jazz. Any of y'all like that? I, I guess it's okay. But to me, it's, it's not spontaneous. And there's no improvisation. And it's all electronic. And it bores me. And it's redundant. It's gibberish. And I keep bitching about it. I can't use any other term. And Lisa says, write the people a letter. I am writing them a letter. Maybe I just like to bitch about it. But, I, you know, it's jazz had character. Had character. Love it when they take off on a theme and everybody goes in their own direction, but somehow they get back home. I love that. I love that in any kind of music. I love gospel music. My daddy's families were gospel singers. I sang gospel music when I was drunk. That's right, on the radio. <laughs> and in person, drunk. A lot of gospel singers are drunk. That surprise you? Shouldn't. My Uncle Johnny... Never had a music lesson in his life. One of those that was automatic. You know when I mean? He sat down at the piano one day and boom, 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 there it came. He played gospel piano. Have you ever heard a real good gospel piano player like Ray Charles? Huh? Play the old 12-bar gospel. You ever hear that? My Uncle Johnny can fly. 
Beautiful. Sing that gospel music, you know. And used to, when they sang gospel music, uh, it was just a piano player. Man, now they got a drummer, an electronic bass, electronic guitar, electronic, 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 you know. I miss it. I don't know if y'all miss it or not. Maybe you don't. And I think about it some. I guess I think about it a good deal. That's just nostalgia, isn't it? Yeah, because it is. But no, because I think it points to a deeper longing in me that was there long before Dr. Parker disappeared and the elevator disappeared and Fred and Joe disappeared. I think this nostalgia points to a deeper longing in me. I've always wanted to go somewhere. I've always felt like I was missing something. I've been searching for something since I got on the face of this earth, and I didn't know what it was. How many of you can identify with that? This sense, man, down here, something is missing. I'm serious about that. And I long for it. You know, this has been talked about for ages. Carl Jung talked about it. When he was talking about alcoholics, in a letter to Bill Wilson, Carl Jung said, To me, the alcoholic's craving for alcohol is the equivalent on a low level of the natural thirst of our being for wholeness. We thirsted for something. The very word alcoholic, dipsomaniac, means real thirsty. I'm thirsty for something. Something's missing. Whatever it is, I'm thirsty for it. I'm hungry for it. Psalmist talked about it. Different way. He said, as the deer longs for those clear streams of water, so longs my soul for you, O God. Remember that one? That's pretty. Augustine. You've made us for yourself, dear Lord. And our souls are restless till they rest in you. Restlessness, thirst, longing. Our world's full of it. It's in our music. It's in our art. This going after something that is missing. Another way it was spoken of is in a country and western song, which is a classic. Y'all, y'all, any country and western fans out there? You know the song, what is it, Detroit City? Hmm? Old boy says, home folks think I'm big in Detroit City. From the letters that I write, they think I'm fine. By day I make the cars, at night I make the bars. If only they could read between the lines. I want to go home. I want to go home, he said. Lord, how I want to go home. Don't we all? Have you thought about that? One of my daddy's favorite songs was, uh, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. When I was singing that gospel music, you know, some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Yeah. In the Baptist church, we sing, coming home, coming home. Story after story about coming home. I want to go home. I miss home. Wherever home is, I want to go back there. Something is missing. I'm searching for something. I want to go home is, to me, 
a metaphor for spirituality. That's what it is. The longing, the thirst, the restlessness. As Dr. Silkworth said about us, Duke, in the front of that book, Alcoholics Anonymous, alcoholic is restless, irritable, and discontented unless he can once again experience the ease and comfort which come from drinking or taking a few drinks. Spirituality, very simple thing, desire to go home. Basic motivating force in every human being, I believe, is desire to go home. That's the term I'm going to use for it, or that's the terminology of the way that we're going to look at it, is that spirituality is that desire to go home. And it's real simple. But we've been awful confused about it. Have you noticed that? Why are we so confused about spirituality? Why are there so many problems with it? I think one reason is that uh, for so long, science has looked upon the <coughs> spiritual as unreal, pipe dream, <coughs> fantasy. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. If it doesn't fit into natural law, forget it. It's not worth studying. It's ethereal. It's otherworldly. Let religion have it. Now, ironically, it's not so much this way anymore. A friend of mine says, if you hear a subatomic physicist talking nowadays, he sounds like a theologian. And if you hear a theologian talking, he sounds like a physicist. They're coming so close together. They're talking about invisible particles. They're talking about energy. They're talking about a force. They're talking about creation being a big bang. I don't know what that means, but they're talking about it. They're coming in contact with things like near-death experiences. They're coming face-to-face -face with real, bona fide, real and bona fide now, faith healing and the role of faith in healing. They're coming face-to-face -face and, 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 and using the body's internal healing power through meditation, guided imagery, and things like this. People are getting healed, getting relief from pain. No medication. It's coming. We're confused about it, too, I think, because of religion. Excuse me, y'all. Organized religion. Okay? I believe you can take anything good and organize it until it's dead. Let religion have it. Let them have spirituality. Let them deal with it. And what do they do? They surround it with ceremony and dogma and ritual and argument after argument after argument after argument. They take something which is very simple, basic, fundamental to every human being and organize it until it's almost dead. I mean, spiritual belongs to religion, doesn't it? You sit down and talk to an alcoholic or an addict or a person who's having living problems and you, you ask them about their spiritual life and they talk about church. There may be no connection. Or a very tenuous one. You know? I do a lot of talking around the country at, at, at uh, conferences and things in the, in the field of alcoholism and drug addiction. And they've just begun to have sections on spirituality. They're actually having these. Do you know that? They're talking about spirituality. Never did before. Not the professionals. 
They talked about transference and counter-transference and personality theory, but they didn't talk about this. But guess who's talking about it? Father so-and-so, sister so-and-so. Anybody that talks about spirituality has to have the collar on backwards. Religion owns spirituality, do they not? It would seem so. I don't believe that. But it's confusing. We are indoctrinated in this society into certain religious beliefs. These may be good religious beliefs. They may not be. People are seeking shortcuts to home. Do you understand what I'm saying? And electronic evangelism is offering just that. You want to go home? No effort. No effort at all. We'll get you there. And by the way, my way is the only way. Don't listen to that other sucker. He'll tell you wrong. And these are some very convincing people, these electronic evangelists. Huh? Some of them are gifted people. They are gifted people, charismatic people. They really are. Swagger? Huh? He is a hell of a preacher. Schuler? <laughs> Even old Jim Baker. They shake and move you. And they offer you a shortcut to where it is you always wanted to go. And they tell you how to get there. And spirituality is natural and simple. And it belongs to all of us. And it's not unreal. And it's very easy to understand. Let me draw you a little diagram up here. We get confused about this too. Every one of us here knows in our heart at some place that the, the spiritual way of life has something to do, and I'm going to use the term, with a relationship with a higher power. Okay? Every one of us knows that, don't we? But listen to what the spiritual teachers said. When we talk about spirituality, we talk about getting right with God, you know, getting closer to God, improving our contact with God, etc., etc., etc. Spiritual teachers said, this is vital. It's absolutely life-giving, this relationship with a higher power. But there are conditions for having it. One of those conditions said one of the spiritual teachers who I know best because I told you last night I was raised as a Baptist. I have a terminal case of baptism, but I, at least I, I admire and respect this guy even from a non-Baptist point of view. Man had something going for him, right? Now, this, this tickles me. It doesn't tickle me. It makes me angry. Organized religion has taken this man too, you know, and turned him into something he's not. You ever go to your church and see a picture of Jesus? Perfectly coiffed hair, huh? I mean, that beard is cut just right. Hmm? Fingernails are clean. You ever notice that? Clean old clothes man on him. You know, usually royal robes or clean white kind of stuff. The man was a carpenter. You know that? The man lived in the days before deodorant. The man's hands were rough. His fingernails were dirty. There were no unisex beauty shops to go to and get your hair cut. And he couldn't afford it anyway. Didn't even have a place to stay. And on top of that, he was a troublemaker. <laughs> he was. There's a whole song written about him. He's a troublemaker, you know. I could tell the moment that I saw him, he was nothing but the troublemaking kind, huh? 
His hair was much too long, and his motley group of friends had nothing but rebellion on their mind. He rejected the establishment completely. I know for sure he never held a job. He just went from town to town stirring up the young folks till they were nothing but a disrespectful mob. I know for sure he never joined the army, served his country as we all have done. He'd rather wear his sandals and his flowers while others fought the wars that must be won. They arrested him last week and found him guilty. Hmm? And sentenced him to die, but that's no great loss. And Friday they'll take him to a place called Calvary and nail that troublemaker to the cross. And Chris Christopherson, Jesus was a Capricorn. He ate organic foods. He believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes. Long hair, beard and sandals, and a funky bunch of friends. Reckon we'll have to nail him up if he comes down again. <laughs> Come on, y'all. We're not talking about a wimp. You understand what I'm saying? But he's been organized to death. And the man said, you going to church to worship God? You remember you have anything against your brother or sister, you had better go straighten out with your brother or sister first. Did he not say that? We miss that, don't we? This new commandment, he said, I give you. Love God with all your heart, soul, body, and mind, I think it was, and your neighbor as yourself. Did he not say that? He really ticked people off. You know that? He really ticked people off. And he ticked off these people who were involved with what? Organized religion. That's who he ticked off. He loved it. He just pick at them. You think you got something, you know? Huh? You know? You ain't got nothing. You have missed the boat, baby. I ain't like that. <laughs> they popped this one on them one day. You know, how you going to love God you can't see? If you can't get along with your brother and sister, they stand right there in front of you. First, he said, learn how to get along with your brother and sister. Y'all remember this from Sunday school? It began to come back to me when I realized that I didn't have a single good human relationship on the face of this earth. I didn't have a single relationship that either I didn't dominate the other person or depend on the other person. I had to control every single relationship. I didn't know how to be a friend. I didn't know how to love you. I didn't know how to let you love me. That was the hardest part. And so the spiritual teachers said, all of them, Check me out. The horizontal relationship here, too, between you and me. And they implied or said, when this one's going right, you don't have to go looking for this one. It happens. You ever had the experience? Hmm? I've had the experience with a flower. You know? And the flowers, do you? Have you ever done that? I've had the experience with a piece of music. I've had the experience with my kids. I've had the experience with Lisa. I've had the experience with friends in AA, you know. Everything's just right horizontally, and all of a sudden, whoo. And they said when everything's right horizontally, this one comes, and right here in this intersection is what you've always been looking for. That's home. I never think the spiritual had anything to do with relationships. It has everything to do with the relationships. And when I understood that, I began to understand why the word we is used more often than any other word in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We. That's magic. That's health. That's healing. That's spiritual. 
And I is the basic word of separation, you see. That's illness. And I began to understand that. And I think that I understand it a little better as I go along. And as my relationships with others improve, guess what? My relationship with the higher power improves. Seems like the more familiar and loving I am on a horizontal level, Patty, the easier it becomes to believe that even God loves me. How about that one? And that's neat, man. Oh, it's beyond neat. It's way up there somewhere. So we're really confused about spirituality. And I want to bring it down to you and maybe get you thinking, like I said earlier, about just how simple this thing really is. Okay? Another thing that we have problems with, we know we want to go home. How many of you can hear what I'm saying when I say you want to go home? This basic drive in every human being, this thirst for wholeness, Young called it, or union with God. It's a, it's a, it's a mover, man. I believe everything comes out of it. Okay? We don't know where home is, and we don't know what it is, and we don't know how to get there. You know? And we don't even know why we want to get there. I, I love Chris Christopherson. I think he's one of the great poets of this century. I really do. He can't sing a lick. He tickles me when he tries to sing. You ever heard Chris, Chris try to sing? <laughs> but he writes it, you know? And he writes it from some place, and it comes out true to me. He just hits me that way. Maybe you have people who do that for you. Yeah. And, and, and that song he wrote once about me and about you. Um, see him wasted on the sidewalk in his jacket and his jeans, wearing yesterday's misfortunes like a smile. Once he had a future full of money, love, and dreams, which he spent like they were going out of style. And he keeps right on a changing for the better or the worse, searching for a shrine he's never found. Never knowing if believing is a blessing or a curse if the going up is worth the coming down. You remember that one? He tasted good and evil in your bedrooms and your bars and he's traded in tomorrow for today. Running from his devils, Lord, and reaching for the stars and losing all he loved along the way. But if the world keeps right on changing, for the better or the worse. And all he ever gets is older and around. From the rocking of the cradle to the rolling of the hearse, the going up was worth the coming down. Hmm? He's a poet. He's a picker. He's a prophet. He's a pusher. He's a pilgrim and a preacher and a problem when he's stoned. He's a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, taking every wrong direction on his lonely way back home. There it is again. I love black gospel music. It gives me chill bumps when I hear it. You know what I mean? It's absolutely stock full of this whole idea of I want to go home. Classic. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Long way from home. We hear it over and over and over and over again. I think this home that I was always looking for is really a state of being. A state of being positively related to you, me, and God. I think that's where it is, at least for me. Why do we want to go home in the first place? 
Can anybody tell me that? We're not satisfied with where we are? Huh? Instinct? Yeah? At any, at any rate, I think we, we feel incomplete. There's something missing. I, every human being, you know, and, and they have beautiful long phrases for this, this feeling of incomplete, this void, you know, this emptiness that you feel inside. Uh, it's an existential vacuum. Don't you love that? Huh? It's the distance from where you are to where you want to be. And this, there, there arises a need, you know, to fill that vacuum. And they call that... Uh, Existential despair? Is that what it is? I love this terminology. I have to learn it and practice it so I can wow people with it, you know, and that be important. But why do we feel incomplete? Are we? I think so. Mythology gives us a clue to it, you know, why we feel incomplete. Mythology says when we got here, each of us was a complete, total, going concern in and of himself or herself. You know that? We were it. And the gods got worried about it, says mythology. And said, if we leave them like that, total and complete, they're going to be like us. We better change that situation. And they did. They cut us right in half. You remember your creation stories? All creation stories, that split occurs and we become separate, incomplete, incomplete. And so Carl Jung talks about this thirst to be whole again, to be complete again, to be all together again as spirituality. Getting it back together. I felt incomplete. You've heard me describe it before as I felt like I had a big hole in the middle of me with the wind blowing through it. And it hurt. I felt it severely. Everyone, I think, knows about their incompleteness. Or at least feels that they're somehow incomplete. But it doesn't seem to bother some people. You ever notice that? Or they find some quick and easy answer to it. You know? That's what we call civilians or normsies. You know, I don't understand these people. They're too healthy for me. I never understood that kind of thing. Some of us, though feel this need severely and deeply. We're really sensitive to it. What one psychiatrist calls stimulus augmenters, we feel this emptiness, this incompleteness, and this despair more intensely. And we're grasping. We are really are thirsty for a way out of this whole deal, you know? And so we take detours. We don't take the path back home. We take detours. We detour with chemicals. We detour with sex. We detour with food. We detour with work. We detour with all kinds of things. And what makes these things so valuable? Every one of them, I submit to you, for some of us, make us feel like we're all in one piece. They create the illusion that I'm home. Alcoholics, when you were just right with the alcohol, and you feel like you were there, everything's fine with God and man. Ain't got an enemy in the world. Ain't that what we said? Get along with anybody. Sing songs. Put our arms around people we can't stand. Huh? 
Go to places you wouldn't be caught dead in. Have a good time. Whole world's falling down around you. Take your needle. Shoot it. The world rebuilds itself. It's astounding. Huh? Want another detour? Fall in love. You know, this old lady up in Charlotte, a mean old lady, been sober too long, I guess. Says alcoholics don't fall in love, they come in heat. I said, that's a nasty thing to say. She's right. As one who's been in heat many times, let me tell you. (laughs) It seems to be complete, doesn't it? Romance is powerful, y'all. Powerful drug. Huh? And when everything goes just right on that job, huh? Here's the illusion. It's all right now. It's wonderful. It's all together. Alcohol, the effect of it leaves, doesn't it? The effect of drugs leaves. We fall out of love quick as we fall in. You ever notice that about us? Can anybody identify with that? You don't have to be a sex addict to fall in and out of love. All you got to be is a human being who's very sensitive to the fact that he ain't home and wants to go there real bad. Because every addiction on the face of this earth, in my opinion, begins in that void. Every one of them. And the void is spiritual, isn't it? And so the genesis, I'm saying to you, of every addiction, alcoholism, sex, any of them, is a spiritual kind of thing. It comes out of a spiritual emptiness, a desire to go home, Patty. I swear. And we get off one detour and get on another one. In the book, Alcoholics Anonymous says, uh, we sought an easier, softer way. Boy, ain't that the truth. You know? We get into AA, you know, and get a little dry behind the ears and fall in love. Right? Then we fall out of love, right? And we figure we can smoke a little pot on the side because it don't say nothing about pot in the big book, right? (laughs) Taking every wrong direction on our lonely way back home. And then finally... It dawns on us. You want to get home, you have to get on a path that is designed to take you home. And if you're going to walk that path, you cannot walk that path and detour at the same time. You're going to be out there looking for a short, swift answer with your sexual life. You cannot practice the 12-step program. Do you hear me? You're going to be out there smoking dope. You cannot practice the 12-step program. You're going to be addicted to work. You cannot practice the 12-step program. You still ain't happy and you wonder why. I'm NAA. Are you? No, you got to get on the path. And either you're on the path or you aren't. I believe that. I didn't want to believe that. Some of those detours were pleasant. I lost sight of the fact every one of them was deadly. Gotta get on the path. And stay there. You used to hear these old timers and they talk about, say bad things about sex. You know what I mean? Tell the, tell the boys, you know, that, that under every skirt is a slip. No, he in and she in. I thought, well, hell, he's so old, he's forgot what it's like anyway. 
No, he didn't. And they'd follow that with first things first. And it, it, it didn't match. You know, they went right by one another in my head till I began to understand what they meant, you know? Priorities, 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 priorities. What are your values? Where are your values? Have you learned any patience? Can you wait? Are you still going to have that alcoholic mentality that says, I've got to feel good every minute of every day and every second of every minute, and if I don't feel good, it's not working. I've never met an addictive person that wasn't very impatient, by the way, y'all, including me. We want it now. Pleasure. Not purpose, pleasure. And then we begin to realize that maybe the pleasure comes from the purpose. If we get on the path and we walk the path and we do a little good for somebody and learn how to love somebody, really love somebody, a little pleasure comes along. That it's not the central thing. That's a bonus. What kind of path? It's going to take us home. And why don't all of them take us there? You know, I've wondered about that. There, there are a lot of wonderful paths. Some of y'all heard me talk about them before. You know, the the uh, Ten Commandments, you know, that that's a very stern, but if you follow those principles, you're going to get home. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, or the Sermon on the Plain in the New Testament and in, in the Bible, those are, are paths that, that lead to home. This place that, that the... Uh, Spiritual teachers call this home heaven. That was their term. Or utopia. Or nirvana. You know. Uh, one Indian guy one day when I was talking said, Don't forget happy hunting grounds. There's a wonderful one. Okay. This is that goal that we're talking about. And, and, and there's some good ones to get there. There's some good psychologists. You know that? Some wonderful psychologists who worked out some pretty good systems, which are really paths that are designed to take you home, although I don't know if any of them would admit it. Abe Maslow probably would, and Carl Rogers probably would. Okay? But there's some good psychological systems. There are some good religious systems. In other words, there are many paths that we can take that lead us home. Any of you ever had this experience? You get on one of those paths. Were any of y'all compulsive churchgoers? In between every two drunks? I was very compulsive about going to church and getting right with God. That's Baptist, okay, to the core. I tried that path very, very hard. I didn't play at that path. I really worked at that path. I put myself down for years on that. I seriously studied the Bible. I seriously studied the Christian path. I tried my best to walk that path because I knew it led where I wanted to go. And it did not work for me. I got on one of the psychological paths. I worked hard with a good doctor. And I knew that path was supposed to lead me home, and I tried, and it did not take me there. Why? You ever wonder that? Why won't psychiatry work for me? Why won't religion work for me? They seem to work for some people. Why not me? I think it has to do with which path you take depends upon where it is you're starting from. I had never thought of that. 
Which path you take and which one works depends on where you're starting from. I really believe that. Now, if you're starting from a, 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 a neurosis, okay, or a psychosis or something like that, psychological path going to take you home or in the direction of it. There's some good ones. And if you're a, your problem is deeply religious, one of those religious paths will take you home. The Eightfold Middle Path of Buddha, the way of Tao. They'll take you home. But if you're an alcoholic or an addict or an addictive person of any kind, your starting point is from addiction, not schizophrenia, not neurosis of the common variety. And you ain't got a religious problem per se. You're an addict. And so you start in on that 12-step path. Now, I'll tell you what. Lo and behold, I have found out, and you're going to discover this, if you stay clean and sober, okay? Do you know that all those paths converge? At a certain point, every good path converges with every other good path. There are certain principles that are common to every one of those paths, and I didn't know that until I got on the path of sobriety and spiritual growth and began to grow back, okay, from way out yonder somewhere to where I was supposed to be in the first place, growing down. And lo and behold, here comes people I can understand walking a different path. And here come people I can understand walking a different path. And the first thing you know, we're on different paths, but we're on the same path. And it's all coming together. It's almost like coming home. Twelve-step path works real good for addiction. It works better, I will not hesitate to say that, than anything else to ever come around. At some point on the path, some AA members will probably kill me for this, but at some point on the path, it may be necessary for you to parallel your path with a psychological path. It may be necessary for you to parallel your path, you know, with a religious path. And that is your business. Okay? Just keep in mind where it is you're going. Home. Where is that? A place of relationships. With who? with others, and with God. I used to hear preachers talk about, uh, in Him we live and move and have our being. You ever hear them say that? It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? I never understood that statement. I didn't. It just sounded wonderful. I hear wonderful things. A lot of times they don't make no sense to me, and all of a sudden the light goes on, you know? Uh, I believe the reverse of that is true. story told by Chuck C. out in California once, I never will forget. It's talking about these three little fishes living in the ocean, Pacific. So these three little fishes swimming around one day playing, you know, so a big fish came swimming by. I said, hi, y'all. They said, hey. He said, isn't it a nice day? They said, yeah, it's a nice day. He said, well, isn't the water nice? And he swam off. First little fish turned to the second one and said, what's water? He said, I don't know. He turned to the third one and said, you know what water is? He said, no, I don't know either. And he said, these three little fishes swam around the Pacific Ocean for the rest of their life, searching for that in which they lived and moved and had their being. And we're told God's closer to us than our next breath. And we say, how can that be? And we're told the kingdom of heaven's right in the middle of you. And we say, how can that be? And we go looking for it like we're looking for Easter eggs. That's natural. 
But we're taught by the spiritual teachers you have to seek in a different way. What you've been seeking externally, you must seek inside. That is where it is. You are the answer to what you're looking for. I'm nuts, I guess. I believe each of us that God lives and moves and has his being in us. I believe that. That we are expressions of God. I really believe that. Do you realize that when you can accept that and look at that and even begin to think about that, how the question of purpose kind of comes real clear for you? You are here, and I am here to express God. And so is every created thing. And I believe that. And that's heavy, isn't it? And we think, oh, bummer, got to express God, you know? Well, if you think about it that way, it's a bummer. But I believe laughing at myself and getting out there and cutting the fool and being happy and joyous and free and being serious and hugging some necks and kissing a few people and just plain old doing the best I can do today is what I'm supposed to do. And when I'm doing that, I'm okay. With who? With you, with me, and with God. I'm home. Now, I don't know when... You know, you get home to stay. Seems like I've visited it many times. Y'all know what I mean? I've visited it many times. And I just wonder, when am I going to get there to stay? I don't know. I really don't. But I do know that if I'm going to take this new path, I've got to get off the old. What that means to me is I've got to die, if you will, to the old path. And to the old self. And I've got to take that new path. It's got to be closed. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I've got to begin a process of growth, which we call in addiction recovery. And recovery to me is a movement back home. It's a progressive series of steps. It takes us right back where we started. Right back to the bosom of the Almighty. Am I getting too religious for you? Sorry about that. Until we reach a point where we have what's called a spiritual awakening, which is like, good Lord, I am his kid. wonderful it is absolutely wonderful good God I am you know even me terrible me classic story let me share it with you about going home now I, if I were a woman see I'd read the Bible and I'd even read the big book and I'd say them people chauvinistic here but you got to remember when these things were written okay and, and there's a classic story about going home which pretty well says the way it is, okay? And all of you are familiar with it. Uh, it's called the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story? You want to hear the revised Brady version of the prodigal son? It's a wonderful story. Not from a religious point of view, from a coming home point of view, from a spiritual point of view. Now listen to this. His kid, see, evidently his father's rich. And so he goes to his father one day and he says, uh, I would like to have what is coming to me. I want to be a man. I want to run my own life. I want to get out of here off the home spread and go out and try my wings. You see? I remember one night I told my daddy, give me what is mine. I was going to be the prodigal son. I want to get out of here. And daddy looked at me and says, you wearing what is yours? <laughs> 
My daddy said that. That sweet man said that. You wearing what's yours. Got to notice a lot of things as this story goes along that I didn't notice before. The father did not argue with the kid. Not one word. Oh, I don't want you to go. Oh, stay home with me. Oh, you know. Respect. It's almost equivalent with godly love. Respect. He says, here. Probably said, good luck. I love you. Kid goes off. And he detours. You understand? Into a far country. Ever been there? Said he wasted his substance in riotous living. He blew his wide, y'all. He's broke. Probably hung over. Pusher wouldn't speak to him. Bootlegger didn't want to see him, you know? Because it said there came a great famine in the land. Oh, Lord, I ain't got no booze. Great famine in the land, and no man gave unto him. You ever been there? And he says, uh, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I got the shakes real bad. I got to get some wherewithal to take care of myself. So like you and me, he got a job. I used to get jobs just to keep temporary, long enough to get one paycheck so I could get drunk and then I'd disappear. I went to work for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company one day. Worked, I worked about two weeks with him. Went out to lunch one day and the man didn't see me again for ten years. <laughs> it's a God's truth. And then I was sober. He said, I always wanted to ask you, where'd you go that day? <laughs> I could have said on a long journey into a far country, you know. <laughs> and, and this kid, and we forget this, you know, we Gentiles forget this. This is a Jewish kid they're talking about. He got him a job. You remember what his job was? Jewish boy tending hogs. And Jews and pigs don't go together. Except one, my friend Manny Berger. He's dead now. He used to live up in Columbia. One of the finest AA members ever walked on two feet. And every time I was down there, Manny wanted to talk to me. You know, I was about the only one he'd talk to. And he'd say, come on over to the house and we'll give you a kosher ham sandwich <laughs> while we talk. Got a job tending hogs, right? He's working, but he hadn't got his first check. Evidently, it was one of those jobs where they withheld your first week's pay. I hated them. And, and he's still hungry. <laughs> and I love the Middle English language. You know, it says he fain would eat the husk that the swine did eat. I know what it told me. It told me pig slop. The boy going to eat pig slop. And he's a Jew and he's tending hogs. Are you ready for that? The shit done hit the fan. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like hitting bottom, isn't it? Wonderful thing. Says he came to himself. You ever think about that in terms of the second step? He came to himself. Now think about the second step. And he said, Self, you're in the hog pen. It's all gone. 
Now he says, uh, Daddy's got the big spread back there. And he says, and listen, I'm not fit to be his kid anymore. But maybe he'll let me work as a servant because the servant's got plenty to eat and wear and place to sleep. So he heads on back with his tail between his legs, you know, because he's no damn good. Well, we put off on God a lot of stuff. You know, I put off my judgment on me, on God. You ever noticed how closely your self-concept relates to your God concept? If you haven't, please do. If you think you are rotten, you're going to have a punishing God. There is no other way. If you think you need judgment, you're going to have a judge for a God. And this boy went home saying, I ain't worthy being his son. What was he looking for when he got there? What was he expecting? An angry father, right? Story says when he was a long way off, father saw him. Sound like a judge? Sound like he's mad at the boy? Just waiting to get him? No. <laughs> and went running out. He saw him. When he's a long way off, he saw Went running out, hugged his neck, kissed him. Kids probably standing there mumbling, saying, I ain't worth being your boy anymore. You know, I ain't worth being your boy anymore. Punish me, punish me, punish me. Boy, we do a number on ourselves. And the father's kissing on him. Put a ring around his finger. Symbol of God's love. No beginning, no end. And God, God's love says, whatever you do, I love you. Nothing you can do is going to change that. Ever. Said, I missed you. Glad you're back. Brother came running up and uh, says, what are you making a fuss about this boy for? He'd been out there and blown his wads, you know. He's a bad boy. Father says, in effect, hush, I don't want to hear that. Said, going back there where we keep the uh, the fatted calf, I think they called him. That's USDA choice, y'all. That's the one for the cookout. Said, go back out there and kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. Your brother was dead and he's alive again. I'm happy. And that's the journey. We go out. And the father waits. We go out and we try our wings, you know. And we take some detours. And we end up in our personal pig pen. And we're hungry and we're sick and we're tired. And we're shaky. And we head on in saying to ourselves, I'm not worth two cents. And on the journey, on the path, we grow more and more and more back towards being a child of the Father. Until we get home, the Father says, you're still the child. You're still it. Growing down. Coming back. I don't care how you put it. To what you were in the first place. And then trying to stay on that path. Trying to stay on it. And grow some more. And grow some more. And grow some more. You want a break for a little while? I know the smoker's about to die for a cigarette. Is it, it's ten minutes to, it's about ten minutes to twelve. You want a break for lunch? Duke, uh, Jerry? Y'all want a break and get some lunch? Do you? Okay. How long would you need? About an hour, be back here at 1 o'clock. 
Okay. Any questions? Sure. Have I made any of you mad? Nobody? Huh? Okay. So you see you at one o'clock. <laughs>